what do you get when you slash a budget in half, rush production for special effects heavy project, and finally sequelize a classic film in record time? Well, you get this week's entry in the form of Kaiju vs. History, The Son of Kong. Welcome back, everybody, to Kaiju versus History, the podcast where uh, we are set to watch, categorize, and rate all the contributions to Kaiju cinema throughout time. Uh, my name is Patrick, and with me, you've already heard the voice of my co-host, Miles. How are you, Miles? Doing pretty well. I'm. We're still in, I guess, what I'm calling the the pre-K era. That's not pre-kindergarten, but that's pre-Kaiju, and. As such, I'm having to watch more giant eight movies than I have ever wanted to. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is this is phase one of of giant ape films. Uh, phase two comes around the 70s uh, King Kong. And trust me, we're, we've got the cream of the crop of. Uh, oh, I know. Here. <laughs> I am. I am well aware. Uh, so this this one's an interesting one because it came out the same year as king kong but patrick you have a a love for alternative titles so tell me what's in a title for this week's movie because this one had quite a few yeah so son of kong came out indeed the same year as king kong which we you know is a fact that you tell people and they're like what really um but came out in december of 1933 as just son of kong there were some translations that put it as the son of kong including in spain and mexico in Japan, where it was released that year as well, um, King Kong did come over in 33, as well as Son of Kong. It was called The Revenge of Kong, which I don't really, I don't think he gets revenge. I, I wish this movie was The Revenge of Kong. Um, there's some, some titles gave it a full, you know, if you've forgotten in the intervening seven months, is The Son of King Kong was a title from Brazil. And in Germany, it was called King Kong's son. So you've got the, the, the big man's name first and then son in there. And finally, in Finland, just Kong's son was a name. And yeah, there's, I mean, not a ton else you can do with this film if you want to have a monster's kind of name in the title. A much more apt title would be return to Kong Island or Skull Island or, you know, because that's it, like it what... definitely would. But I think to get butts and seats, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you put Kong's name in the title. And of course, a giant ape on your poster. That's going to get people into the movie theater. And imagine seeing one of the most amazing spectacles of science fiction or fantasy and adventure ever put on the silver screen and then seeing a poster come up for the sequel just later on that year, you know? And I can imagine it would have been exciting, but it's I don't not, know if I nine, mean nine months after the, the first release, but that, that Kong traveled around the country. So some people might have not have gotten it until the summer 
I, I guess I wonder, I mean, just because I know very little about 1930s you know, pr- coming attractions, like if they did trailers, I know they did newsreels and, and at yeah. one point cartoons, but I don't know if like this had a theatrical trailer. I mean, they did have them back then, whether this one, even they had time to do it. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, well, yeah, there's there, there is that. And I mean, this is the thing about this movie that it had half the budget uh, as King Kong. So when they decided to make this movie, they went ahead and slashed the budget, despite the first film being such a huge hit. I think mm-hmm. they made it with what? $269,000, which yeah, adjusted so, for inflation is what? 5 million. Yeah. So if that was made today, it was about 5 million and Kong adjusted for inflation today. I mean, I mean, surprisingly is only about like 12 or $13 million, which is, I mean, that's crazy in its in and of itself, but you got to realize, you know, movies today that cost 10 times that uh, have probably staffs of people equivalent. You know, they, they have dozens and dozens of people on the special effects team, um, probably twice as many cast and crew as his son of Kong. So more more people to pay. And this one, I mean. That I, maybe they could have gotten a, a larger budget, but if they still had to get the movie in theaters before the holiday, before Christmas, 1933, I don't know if they could have burnt the cash and, and, and got through it that fast because <laughs> right. there's, there's only so much you can do with the time that you have for that, those special effects. And what's really interesting to me, at least just interesting in terms of looking at it from a modern perspective is when the screenwriter Ruth Rose said they intentionally made no attempt to make a furious, a serious film on the logic that it couldn't surpass the first. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. It's certainly an interesting angle to, to come from, but I think you could have easily made a, an interesting emotional film that was as serious as the first film and still, you know, came off with it. And, their whole thing was they wanted to almost make it like a cartoonish film, you know, and I, I can understand from the script point of view, how this could have been, you know, a very different feeling film because um, it is almost entirely away from kind of civilization, I guess, where the, the end of the first Kong kind of has that nice button at the end. But for the most part, they didn't really have a great line on what the special effects scenes were going to be while they were writing the film, because it's almost like it's two complete movies in the fact that some of those scenes that are being animated, uh, stop motion animated, take a lot longer, of course, than the, the live action stuff. So I think they shot just about everything for the actors, the live actors in the film in like less than a month. Um, and then almost all the rest of the production time was probably going into uh, Willis O'Brien and more probably accurately his, his effects team uh, as he was often stepping out on this production. Um, but that, that team included Ray Harryhausen uh, as well as some, some other animators Um yeah, and he's someone who's going to uh, pop up from time to time on this show now, <laughs> from here on out. Yeah, pretty, pretty I, big he, name. I think he's in at least the next three films we're doing. 
Um, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am. So I'm, I'm not making that up. He did work on this film as well. Right. <laughs> I believe so. Yes. Uh, um, but, but I, Gibson, I think he was, I think he was just like first technician. I don't Buzz, think he was, um, in any state of like a, a big, big role. Um, Buds Gibson was the other half of the special effects team, uh, for, for the film. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of flabbergasted by this movie because I, oh, and I, I was, I was out, out wrong. Uh, Harry Housen was not on this one. He's in, uh, next week's movie. Okay. Yeah. So as, maybe as first technician, so I'm just I, mixing my monkey movies. I'm thinking Buds Gibson then was, I think, uh, doing a lot of the, the work on, on this film as well. So, and let's talk a little bit about the, the, the actual model here, because they, they reused some of the, uh, the armature for Song of Kong and, and two yeah. of the existing models, which are apparently now owned by Peter Jackson, which doesn't surprise me <laughs> and being a massive Kong fan so much so that he made a three hour King Kong movie. Yeah. I think the other one is owned by a private enterprise. So I, I want to say there were three or four of the Kong armatures from uh, the original King Kong. And yeah, one of them, at least one of them was stripped down so they can reskin it with uh son of Kong, which I don't, I don't like calling him that. It's like, he doesn't have a name. Son of Kong. Yeah. They had one kind of behind the scenes, but they never give him one in the film. Yeah. So they promoted the movie by calling him Kiko, <laughs> uh, not just junior Kong, which I think, think is said in the movie or kong jr um but kiko you know is abbreviation of king kong and um i I guess they also called him little kong i don't i don't love kiko but i mean it's it's right in line with manila and (laughs) and i i like i like kiko better than uh junior or son of kong it's an actual name so i can appreciate that um, and that's kind of <laughs> all there really is in terms of like, you know, interesting background for this movie because it was such a rush production and there isn't a whole lot of literature out there for Son of Kong. I feel like we should just dive into this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, like you mentioned, um, uh, Ruth Rose. I mean, it, it has a lot of the same kind of people involved in the original Kong Marion C. Cooper is an executive producer. He's not directing any longer that goes to his associate producer from King Kong, uh, Ernest Shodsack. Um, and indeed they had very little time. They're using a lot of borrowed sets for, for son of Kong. Um, one thing I appreciated because, you know, sequels were still kind of a new idea. You know, you did have some universal so, horror sequels at the time. You've got serials, um, right. which are, I mean, that's not really sequels. They're de- meant to be divided up. But yeah, some for a film to have an immediate sequel like this, I think that's got to be pretty, pretty novel. Um, it's, I mean, so I know that, again, Universal tended to you know, work pretty quickly sometimes mm-hmm. in, in terms of putting stuff out, I think. Um, but there are certain titles, you know, I mean, Dracula came out and I think it was five years before Dracula's daughter came out, mm-hmm. but so this was still, yeah, you're, you're right. This is still, I mean, 
new ground. And we're still talking about an era where the, the film itself is, is in its infancy. I mean, we're only uh, 15, 20 years removed from kind of the first kind of wide release. Mm-hmm. And, you know, only in the, the infancy of Hollywood's golden age. Yeah, yeah. Still in the grips of the, the Great Depression. Um, uh, I'm not really talking about the time of uh, when this movie was made because it's the exact same time as last week's episode on King Kong. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it did come out in the, the winter of 33. And I think audiences were ready just for more of the story. And the story picks up immediately where the last film ends. I think after the the RKO, um, um, what what do you call it? A placard at the beginning of the film. Uh, the first thing you see is the poster of King Kong, which could have I been a nice touch. Yeah, it could have been a, a poster for the movie, but is a poster for his live appearance from the first film uh, in um, I almost said Cooper's apartment but carl denham's apartment and this takes place just a few months like in real life after the (laughs) the first king kong and the the beginning part of this movie has some keystone cops kind of shenanigans as denham escapes lawsuits um depositions uh grand juries he's in trouble and i honestly when this film started, I thought, okay, this is a nice touch. I like that we are following because yeah. a lot of a lot of these movies did tend to like just create their own continuity and mm-hmm. you would not get a continuing set of characters. And I'm saying this retroactively. I'm I, after seeing monster movies for years and years and years, like in the Godzilla franchise, you rarely see the same character again. You might see the same actor, but mm-hmm. not often the same character. So as, I, as a modern viewer, I think this is pretty neat. Yeah, and I mean, if you're a huge Kong fan, a real massive fan of the original King Kong, I mean, you can watch these movies back to back, and there's a lot of through fare. You know, there's um, Englehorn, the the ship's uh, the Ventures uh, captain <laughs> is <like> him. <laughs> is here, um, and also uh, they, they do him very dirty in the the opening of the film where they're saying, you know. Um, Robert so-and-so as, as Carl Denham, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, we get uh, Chinese cook represented in the, the film. Uh, Even though he has a name in the script. Well, the, he has a name in King Kong, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, played by Victor Wong. Uh, he's just, he's billed as Chinese cook, which is pretty ridiculous. And they say his name like a million times in they, this movie. He's like an integral yeah. character. But yeah, the, the critic credits uh definitely disrespected my man uh charlie yeah who still remains to be the 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 best character one of my favorite lines of this movie comes from him where he's like i guess next time you leave big monkey alone huh (laughs) i mean so that's one of the examples in this movie where the humor really works because by and large i feel like the 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 humor in this film falls very flat you know it's it's interesting because Carl Denham is kind of like a, an over the top character. I don't think he was really played like that in the first movie that much, Mm-mm. but like, that's, I mean, he's like, you know, a crazy explorer and film producer. And, and, and like we said in last week's episode, he's a stand in for Marion C. Cooper himself. But I, I'd like to think if they had made, <laughs> there was a, um, uh, an April fool's joke on the DVD 
for Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong, where he said he was uh, going in and making starting production on the sequel, Son of Kong. Um, but, you know, that movie might have worked very well with a Jack Black as a, a Carl Denham kind of seeking redemption. I mean, the warning for a few years from now. I really like Black's portrayal as Denham. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, it, it is a comedian, very much a comedian, comedic actor in that role in a way that I don't think Robert Armstrong really was. He was playing it very straight. But in this movie, we do get a lot more of Carl Denham for better or for worse. If you I, liked his character or not, I think he's better in this movie. Um, I think Robert Armstrong does a pretty good job making him fun to watch, which in the first film, he wasn't to me. Yeah, it wasn't super the main character because we have, you know, um, yeah. Fay Ray and, and the, the the love interests there. And Kong, of course, who is really the dominant force in that first movie here. Son of Kong. Kiko, <laughs> the, the monkey, isn't really there's not as much as a, of a build up to seeing him uh, besides he's just there. He just shows up once they finally get to Skull Island and then they interact with him. Well, and so for my problem with the production here isn't just that Kiko looks a lot cheaper and I'm not sure wh- why there was a choice to make him a, an albino gorilla. Because I feel like oh, it's that different. it's different, but on the gray scale, like it just didn't, it made him look cheaper to me. And but not just that, but like when they're, when they're sailing from New York, mm-hmm. they don't even have like a map that they can draw a line around. They just put up names of places they're passing. Oh in, yeah. In, in just your regular old font. And it makes <laughs> the production feel just so dime store. We swear this isn't um, <laughs> Southern California. This is the, <laughs> the wilds of Decang in Polynesia. Um, yeah. So um, for a quick recap of the film, Denim escapes his, his debtors, the people suing him in New York, and just, you know, scoffs at all that and travels the world with Englehorn. And for some reason is now just accepted as a, uh, like a first mate on, on the venture. Yeah, Rich- they're, they're leaning on the dock. They both have little, little, little captain hats on and they're smoking think, cigarettes. And I'm just yeah. like, what is going on here? There's a line where Anglehorn says that he's also like in trouble, you know, for bringing a giant, you know, I, I blame as, as the an, port. As an accomplice, of- yeah. I blame the Port Authority because they allowed the, the monkey off the boat, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. the, the local government has to take some responsibility for that. But, you know, the monkey escaping and then causing damage. Obviously, someone has to someone has to go down for that. <laughs> and boy, howdy. One one thing they didn't really talk about, but had to have been, you know, a reality. It's like, what do they do with Kong's body? That's never really. Did they dig like just a huge grave? for it that I, they i don't know they, they they don't talk about i mean and this funeral is pyre where they, they didn't always i mean they just accept you to go with them it's it's very much like the silver age of comics where yeah. they don't always explain everything um and from here we have denim and anglehorn going to uh doc Hang, which i think is the just grinds the movie to a halt even though it sets everything up it is this movie is an hour long and uh 69 minutes if you're nasty but it it feels this this segment of the movie feels like it took 45 minutes. Yeah. So they get there and they go and there's a big production about them 
enjoying their time there and they go see a show which is small monkeys playing instruments in time with one another it's that definitely feels like it goes on for five minutes but it's probably like 45 seconds it's it's a it's it's a rough and then the ringmaster for this kind of little sideshow circus introduces the wondrous helene uh who is played by helen mack uh who's our our fey ray for this movie and Which, it's well because her her character's name is hilda but they actually they never say her name <laughs> they never say it in the movie yeah because denim calls her like kid kid constantly something like that <laughs> at the end he's like proposing marriage and I just want to be like, do you know her name? Yeah. It's like, um, check on that horse. I do. You. <laughs> I love you, kiddo. <laughs> um, it, it, I, it's weird. And I like um, Helen Mack in this movie. I think she's pretty good. I like her more than Faye Ray, personally. I do, too. I think I think, I think Faye Ray's a better screamer. They're both great. They actually give Hilda a lot to do, and she's... Uh, she's the one that has bad feelings to Captain Nils Hellstrom. Um, she is, you know, trying to to help her father out, who is having a hard time um, here. In yeah, the well, they, they they immediately because again, this is 1933, but they, for me, they immediately like I don't care what happens to you, especially it's like oh, well, at least it's a white man to talk to, and I'm like oh boy. <laughs> uh yeah yeah so they um her father and, and captain nils hellstrom are drinking buddies they get in an argument and the tent burns down uh and hilda's got a great action scene Helen mac releases the monkeys first i like before she even like goes as, to see her father as, as you do you gotta get those monkeys i'm very happy there was no animals shown dying at least at this part of the film and then she pulls you know, her father out of this burning tent goes back in, pulls her chest out, and uh, it's actually a pretty, pretty great scene. And you know, a lot more than Faye Ray does in the entirety of the first King Kong. She just kind of is held in a hand for most of that movie. But it's, it's so funny that you say that because I feel the same way. And I mean, I know half the stuff I talk about King Kong sounds like complete sacrilege to a lot mm-hmm. of cinephiles and and monster movie enthusiasts, just because I'm. I've never really connected with it. I think Faye Ray is great. I think she is an OG scream queen, but in terms of acting, and it's also because I felt like Hilda was given just so much more to do, so much more pathos yeah. um, to work with. But yeah, she she's very refreshing as as the um, as the female lead in this in this film. Captain Nils has got. Uh, he's the one that originally we find out gave the map to Skull Island to Carl Denham and finds the, him and Englehorn uh, in Decang and is com- you know convinces them to let him on the ship and then while on the ship says oh by the way did you ever get the treasure on Skull Island and it's very obvious i think to the audience that he's lying <laughs> right uh for whatever reason to go back there he wants to go back maybe but it turns out he is really just trying to wrest control of the ship because he tells all the the crew members you know it's actually an interesting 
plot here that is getting us closer to, to Skull Island and in more dire straits. There's now not going to be a ton of crew members to be sacrificed to the the log crossing gods. <laughs> um, they they get kicked off. Carl Denham and Englehorn they get mutinied, and Hilda is, is stowed away, and she goes with them, and. Charlie, the cook, saves their bacon by stowing weapons aboard and, and food and water aboard their their small boat that has to row to the island. And then Captain Nils gets kicked off as well. So he's with them. And he literally just mutinied the captain. And the captain is still fine saving his life and bringing them aboard. And it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense. <laughs> and it made me so, so angry. Um, it's not the only point I, I, I know I promised uh, Patrick this was going to be very much a family friendly podcast for language. So I'm not going to say exactly what I said when I was watching <laughs> this movie, but I, I some of the logic stuff here made me so angry. And I honestly, I just didn't like the character of uh, Hellstrom. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I, he's, he's one of those characters that shows up in a lot of monster movies well, later a lot on of pulp fiction too he's he's alien I mean, you know there's there's always the sniveling kind of guy that betrays everyone and yeah and i just despite the fact that this hadn't really been done to death yet it's a character that has nothing else to offer and he's only he's only he kept keeps, alive keeps backstabbing by, them yeah <laughs> yeah by by the virtue of the the heroic characters but I, I don't think he offers anything. I think the actor does a, a, a fine enough job just being a, a giant toolbox. But <laughs> I'm I, I had I got I got no time for him. We get introduced to to Kong as he's about to die in some quicksand, and Carl Denham and Hilda save him, and we get a little bit of repentance from from Denham as he apologizes for killing you know, um, the big guy's father. I have a a really, really hard time dealing with this scene. I like the fact that Denim is guilt-ridden over the death of Kong. I like seeing mm-hmm. that side of him. However, band-aiding a boo-boo does <laughs> not equate murdering your dad. We're square, He's, right? W- one of these things does not cancel out the other. Well, he saved, <laughs> saved his life, too, so they're... There is that, but then immediately Kiko or Son of Kong saves Denim and Hilda like five times in a yeah, row. Yeah, that's <laughs> the thing. It's is like a little I uneven. Even, I can't even give them the credit for, especially with how this movie ends. I cannot give Denim the credit for. Oh well, he did save him from the quicksand, so that you know we're we're square because yeah, it 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 kind of mirrors the the journey that Faye Ray's uh, character goes on in the first film, where like she's just bombarded by one monster scene after the other and you know you get the screams and it's just yeah. i will say the the this is where you get the coolest parts of the movie because you get the the yeah. cave bear fight and another dino fight i i all of that stuff looks awesome despite the limited money they had they still managed to make that stuff look cool i think some of them were indeed miniatures stop motion models that they had already planned to use in King Kong, but didn't make it. Um, I want to say the plesiosaur like dinosaur. We, we got a little bit of in King Kong, if I remember, but it gets a lot more play here. Um, but yeah, the, the stop motion models, that's one of the things that does look good, even though rushed. Um, mm-hmm. 
I the set parts of the set here were reused for, from some other films. It gets a little old. The same steps leading up so they the actors can be like on the same level as as Kiko and like this giant like locked door. It uh, I have written in my notes. It began to feel like a Universal Studios stage show where it's like you're always looking at like one yeah. side of this big set and they just kind of like it's where we have the fights, you know, and it's where. They save Kiko from the quicksand and there's not like other areas of the island that they kind of go explore. explore. Uh, the rest of the crew, Charlie and, and Englehorn and stuff get chased by it's not Triceratops. I think I've written in my notes. Uh, it's a, 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 a Stercosaurus. So yeah, it has like, it's like a Triceratops, but with like one horn. Yeah. Um, and uh, Charlie the Cook, I just I love him so much here. He's got he's, he's, he's just carrying a cleaver the entire film, and he goes at that dinosaur with a cleaver. My man, Charlie, no uh, kidding, yeah, MVP. I'm not a huge fan that like they don't represent him um, the same way in the 2005 King Kong, which um, I mean is definitely a, a an Asian caricature here, very much so. But they replace him with like an Australian cook um, who's got a very different kind of temperament <laughs> yeah i still think who, has who, the, who would imagine the australian director inserted an australian he's a kiwi he's right yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah maybe he was supposed to be a kiwi cook but i think that cook has a a cleaver as well at the very least um that's one of my favorite scenes as well as um i do enjoy denim bandaging up that that finger because it uses that same uh, rear projection silver screen that worked so well in King Kong, where we have a, a very good looking miniature in the foreground and the background is the, the actors kind of interacting with a, a large hand prop, a little smaller or a lot smaller, I should say than King Kong's hand prop, which put him at like 40 foot tall. <laughs> but um uh, I mean, it's still very large. It's a, it's large enough. Well, it, it's a different size at the end of the movie, but it's large enough to hold a Carl Denham. Yeah, uh, but, but before we get to that, the the oh, that I do want to say the the fights, while they do look cool, that this is where they try to insert that comedy, and mm. and this is what really doesn't work for me. It's 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 pre cartoon, so it doesn't quite nail like the when he gets bonked in the head and he kind of has a little dizzy look. It's not quite you know Tweety Birds are going around his head, but it's close enough. But it also it it's such a stark contrast to the brutality of the fight that's going on yeah. that it just doesn't seem like they have a settled tone and or the scene where he shoots himself with Denim's gun and I'm, I'm just sitting here like okay now you're just making him look like an idiot <laughs> well he doesn't know what a, a gun really sure i understand that works. but like it's i don't know i for me the they can't figure out the kind of movie they want to make they may say they want to make a lighthearted comedy but yeah. none of the comedy works and all of the brutal adventure stuff does work so it makes those moments just like completely just land so flat I think they they saw a lot of kids coming out of the original King Kong, and, and those were like the people most excited right. about the film, which is the same thing that's going to happen in about ten years with or twenty years with uh, Godzilla. Is a, a Shiro Honda is going to see children's reaction to to those first couple of of Godzilla movies, and mm-hmm. well, we know where that you know kind of influenced the rest of the films. Um, here, I will say that. Kiko's kind of 
behavior and personality is, I would say, a step up from King Kong because we get at least a little he's got, more he's got a personality emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he does seem to be very protective of them after he, they bandage his wound and save his life. And, you know, to a fault <laughs> for sure, because at the end we can talk about, I don't understand. I think maybe, it, maybe it was caused by them taking the jewels off of this temple, this hidden temple inside the center of skull Island. But for some reason, did you get a, a sense as to why the Island starts disintegrating and falling apart? Like, so I, I was a little confused at first, and apparently, according to the, the the lines, it's that both an earthquake and a hurricane are hitting there at the same time. And <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that makes an why. island entirely sink. But, but regardless, it's like bad luck for all those islanders. <laughs> it, well, uh-huh. it, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and yeah. also, if there was a, a, a massive hurricane coming, I know uh, meteorology was still not, you know, advanced as it is now but they probably could have had some idea that a hurricane is coming right <laughs> yeah well um maybe, maybe all the islanders rode away beforehand they, they could sense it but yeah all the other animals on the island are probably dead but but this also swim. is what deflates the entire movie for me is 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 this scene yeah and, and just like at the end of titanic you know i feel like they could have gotten jack up on that door <laughs> got son of kong like just hold on to the end of the boat or something maybe he could have kicked and and power them along but king kong uh falls off the building dies son of kong spends his last minutes on the final sinking piece of skull island lifting carl denham up out of the water so um hilda and inglehorn and, and charlie can find him and save his life i mean it's it's uh, it's so dissatisfying for me like i i i I actively hated that why why do they keep killing off these monkeys miles no kidding i mean that combined with how long it takes to get to where we are i just i I, there are so many positive things that i could have said about or have said about this movie that would have maybe affected my overall opinion of it but that finale there, because right afterwards, like, oh, and they're saved and they've got the treasure. They're going to be rich. And and then um, Hilda and Denim are going to get married. And at the end, like it's yeah. I just uh, I, I it really rubbed me the wrong way. And <laughs> you know what bothered me the most about that ending is like they have these priceless gems and it's only four people that have survived Skull Island. And they're like, all right, we'll split the treasure four ways and then hilda's like well why don't we split it three ways you know suggesting that her and denim are one marry one another it's like well yeah but they together get less treasure <laughs> right. like, denim i feel like is a, a numbers man he would have shot that yeah. down yeah he's like do you want 50 percent or you do like, you want 33 percent which is better it's like uh uh, that that bothered me at the end. Um, the the critics at the time were as harsh, I think, as we are being right now in the New York Times. Which surprisingly, you can go on a New York Times website and look up uh, movie reviews from 1933. They That's have them awesome. digitized there, both the the picture of the printed page and the words written out. Review says um, 
while it's not the masterpiece of mechanical ingenuity that King Kong was, its leading player of this film uh, devotes a regrettably small portion of its story. Um, Kiko is not in it that much. Uh, the introduction is a, a long and, and windy account of Carl Denham's preparations for the trip, and it goes to unnecessary trying lengths to plan to the villain and the girl. That's a pretty good description, yeah. trying lengths. I, I love how clinical variety was. This is the sequel to and wash up of the King Kong theme, consisting of salvaged remnants from the original production and rating is fair entertainment. Fair That's enta- it. Fair entertainment is like two out of four stars. So that that makes sense. You know, it's fair. <laughs> yeah, I, and, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, we, we should go on to. Uh, I mean, do you have anything else to say about some Kong? I feel like we've given this no, way too no, much time. No. <laughs> we should go on to our rating system, which is going to be very similar we have set this for this entire podcast. The rating system that we use is one to 10, and we're going to uh, rate each of these films on three kind of factors, personal enjoyment, the technical and the aesthetic elements and emotional evocative responses as this generates as a piece of art, specifically in the Kaiju genre. Um, we're each going to have a score and then we're going to mm-hmm. combine them. Uh, Miles, you want to go <laughs> first with your, your individual score. Sure. I, think, so, I think we're going to be pretty similar on this. Yeah. So for my uh, personal enjoyment, I, I gave it a four out of 10. Mm-hmm. I, I, I initially really enjoyed the, some of the acting and I enjoyed the direct continuation. However, I thought the, the cheap production, despite how good some of the special effects were along with the, just the slog of a plot. I mean, we get to skull Island, I think 45 50 minutes into a 69 minute movie takes twice as long as in King Kong. And I mean, because of the ending, it just makes it so dissatisfying. While I was pretty generous in how I talked about uh, these, you know, individual actors and everything. I I feel like as a, uh, the, sum of the parts is it honestly just, it's a rough watch. That's not one that I'm looking forward to seeing again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I give it a a four. Uh, What about you, buddy? Uh, for my personal enjoyment, I, I mean, it's definitely nowhere near the original, obviously. I still think this is a very competent film in general, but yeah, I enjoyed it significantly less. And I think I gave this aspect, uh, an eight out of 10 for Kong, but this one is almost half of that. I'm not, I didn't go down as far as a four. I said five out of 10, uh, good on our scale, but definitely nowhere near great. <laughs> Um, for the technical aspects, pretty great fights. We talked about the cave mm-hmm. bear. We talked about some other aspects of it, the set. And I think the music a little bit was, we didn't even talk about because it's kind of like non-existent <laughs> felt like rush jobs. And that shows in many of the areas of its production. Uh, so I, I think I gave King Kong like a 10. I gave this one a six. What about you? I also gave it a six. I thought the fights were awesome. I thought despite how much the budget showed the miniature work was still very good and yeah. needs to be uh, recognized for it. But yes, it's, it's technically a shoddier job and it, it doesn't quite look as good, especially in some of the scenes where he's supposed to be kind of in the distance and they have the, um, you know, the, the screen, in the background, it just yeah. looks a lot grimier. And yeah, so I, I'm giving it a six uh, just based on that. 
Yeah, yeah. I was I was very disappointed with some of those sets as well, like I said. But uh, finally, as far as uh, the cultural importance of the film, its emotional response, things like that. I do like Carl Denham showing remorse for his actions. I feel like as a plot point, that is something kind of original. Uh, but yeah, Killing Off Kong Sung made sure that this film was probably left out of kind of the, the general kaiju universe and is probably why we don't see another baby kong creature for <laughs> like 40 years or whatever and or, we don't see kong himself until he fights godzilla right yes yes exactly so uh imagine if in <laughs> his first outing miles they killed baby godzilla in um yeah, attack of the boy, monsters my boy uh manila it's just it's unbelievable it's, it's five five out of ten not a uh not quite a soulless cash grab it's like one step above that i think on our scale of four is like a, a soulless cash grab but boy howdy did this movie um <laughs> it have a lot of those earmarks yeah uh so my my total score because I, I had the I had the same thing. My, my I gave it a a four in this respect because yeah, the cultural response. I I mean the fact that this film hasn't been as well preserved or talked about is a good indication of of, of its cultural impact. And and as far as an emotional response, uh, making me actively angry for bad decisions that a movie makes is is not a way to win me over. And I. Yeah, I gave this one a four. I can I can see why uh, some people might enjoy this film. It is certainly, I mean, I talked positively about it, but if I'm giving my honest opinion of the movie in terms of like how I view it, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, also a four, which I think gives my average a 4.6, which you are determined to put up to a five. <laughs> <laughs> I think with mine, it's a little closer to a six I, I get five six five so those average out to what i feel like is more than fair for this one a five out of ten which is such you know that's a four point drop from nine months 290 days between king kong and son of kong and they lose four stars from us yeah, yeah that I means mean, um our diehard kong fans and maybe no one else i don't know mm -hmm. i don't i i would have a hard time recommending this i've i've had my fair share of movies like that um as someone who enjoys silent hill revelations which uh, that's a very niche group so I, I i definitely get that so if someone told me that they really enjoyed Silent of kong i would i would totally understand it despite the fact that i don't see it like i said i think if you loved love king kong and we were like i want some more this is this is the more for you but otherwise our final scoring here is indeed uh, we can say son of Kong uh, for Kaiju versus history is going to be a five out of 10 as our, our final score. And that's going to do it for son of Kong. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Kaiju versus history. Email us with comments, concerns, or Kaiju facts at Kaiju versus history at gmail.com and go to Kaiju versus history.com to get ready for the next installment of our march through the annals of monster movie mayhem. Patrick, thank you. And listeners, oh boy. <laughs> thank you for sticking with us uh, through this uh, cinematic disaster piece. And we will catch you next time when we visit a great new ape and one that has reboot energy written all over it. That's right. Next time, tune in for History versus Mighty Joe Young. <laughs>